When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Revelation 8, 1 through 4. Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Zelwyn Heidi, here today with David Appold and Adam Koontz to continue our discussion on the book of Revelation. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Doing well, Zelwyn. Good to be on with you. Always doing fa- good. Doing fantastic. How's the weather out your guys' way? Well, uh, Paducah, it's, Paducah is beautiful all the time, but I think especially in March and April. The, the one drawback here, uh, we have all these flowering trees, which I love. I used to think that trees were just green or brown, but there's actually flowers that come out of trees, I found out. Um, <laughs> and that also means pollen, too. So everything, every morning I wake up and my car has this thin film of green, kind of neon green powder on it, and my eyes itch all the time. But other than that, it's, uh, you know, that's a small price to pay for the beauty. <laughs> Adam, what about you? Uh, we don't have flowers here. We just have clouds. So that's that's where we're at. <laughs> nor sun, nor joy, nor happiness. <laughs> that's that's how that's how our orthodoxy is preserved through misery. So. <laughs> Only the lamb, the lamb in your midst, brings you all happiness. But he's invisible yeah. right now. So that's what right. Are you do? That's right. Yeah, he's got a mask on. So. <laughs> We uh, up here in North Dakota, we are in, enjoying some uh, rain that we've received recently since we've kind of been in a drought. We're pretty happy about that. And I woke up this morning to find snow on the ground again. So, yes. whoa. But that's that's exciting because that means that we have more moisture that we desperately need. So we can give thanks for even the snow this late in the year. Yeah, 75 and sunny here today. Um, <laughs> no clouds in the sky. <laughs> pretty nice so zawin zawin is actually a central asian cryptid most people <laughs> get that twisted and think he's a north american cryptid but he's actually a native of the gobi desert so well, zawin tell us what the crossing of the land bridge was like well i remember it like it was yesterday <laughs> uh. But speaking of cryptids, or at least missing people, we do have to press F for Willie today because I believe he's gone off to seek Atlantis this morning, or wherever he's He's, gone. He's entered into another cycle of death and rebirth, but when he returns, he will be a forceful man with a black mustache. We know that for sure. So, (laughs) Whatever name he has. Right. He certainly gains power every time he goes through this. So absolutely, I'm looking no forward to it. I'm looking right. forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. We should probably get rolling into our discussion this today. Uh, we're talking about the next portion of the Book of Revelation, which, of course, is the seven seals. But how do what do we, what ground have we covered up to this point, David? And you know, kind of lead us into this. Where are we going with this discussion? Well, we're coming out of. I guess the part that all the liturgical scholars enjoy in the book of Revelation, which is the, I don't know, the heavenly liturgy uh, around the lamb and the throne. And you have all these different types of beings. You've got living creatures and a- myriads of angels and the saints all worshiping God and the lamb on the throne. And uh, what happens next is that the lamb goes up to the throne, takes a scroll from the hand of God and the scroll has these seven seals on it. And there was a concern in heaven because no one was able to open this scroll until the lamb appeared. And so what we're going to read today and what we're going to discuss today is um, what happens when the lamb takes the scroll. He, I don't think that we're going to get into what's actually written on the scroll. But as he opens it, um, there's various things that happen as each seal is opened. And what 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 would we take away from that as the lamb opens each seal that these things are happening? Like what what's the first thing that we would take away from that? Well, I think the the importance of connecting these parts of the book of Revelation, like you don't have I mean, you don't have like chapters four and five kind of neatly tucked away from 
the seals that follow in, in six, seven, and eight, which is, I mean, this is always one of the difficulties in reading just pericopes is that you just, you know, you have, everybody knows all saints day, you're going to hear revelation seven, but how many people know that that vision comes within the breaking open of the seals and that, um, that vision of revelation seven, which is a, a glorious vision is in the midst of these kind of terrifying visions. So I would, I would say to you, Zelwyn, that seeing it within its context, that as the, as the lamb sits on the throne, as he opens up his book, here's what his, here's part of how his kingdom comes on earth. And it's not always, you know, it's not always pretty. It's not always pleasant. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be tribulations. Um, there's going to be plagues that come on the earth. And those things come because the lamb is on the throne. So if the book of Revelation is meant primarily as a comfort, I mean, I think we've had that discussion mm-hmm. before, meant yeah. to be a comfort to the Christian, how, what comfort would we find in this section? This seems, I mean, it seems terrifying, right? It seems like it's just scary. It seems like it's just weird. What, what is the, the overall intention of, of these, you know, two and a half chapters? Well, at least in part, um, that none of these things that happen happen apart from the Lamb. So they happen because the Lamb is opening up the the seals. And it's like we're going to talk in a minute here about these um, the the four horsemen. And maybe our listeners will be familiar with these four horsemen who ride out into all the world. And as they go, there's various problems that that come because of them. But none of that is is outside of the the control. None of it is outside of the power of the lamb. And to to maybe give a good parallel to this in the Old Testament, if you think of Israel in Egypt, as the plagues are falling on Egypt, and I think especially the first three plagues are experienced by everyone, there would have, there, there, they are signs of God's power. They are signs of God's judgment over Pharaoh and over the gods of Egypt. And I think in this, in a very similar way, these seals reveal the lamb's power over the entire earth. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Adam, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah. You have to accept the, the things that occur in connection with the breaking of the seals as the lamb's providence, because the other option is that the lamb is insane in releasing either accidentally or consciously these things upon the world. But I think that what John is giving you is a picture of a story or symbolic way of thinking about how all things work together for them that love God, that are called according to his purpose. Because if you don't believe that, then the alternative is that a sort of insane demiurge is letting loose madnesses and terrors on the earth. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think that's a great point that... You know, even even if these things do seem terrifying on their face, even if the things that we face seem terrifying on their face, yeah, I mean, absolutely, all things work together for good for those who love God. And that even these seals, as they are being broken open, are at least, at the very least, moving towards the, the completion, you know, that, that the Lamb will be victorious over all things. So, yeah, no, I, I do think that there is something to be said for uh, the comfort which we can get from all of this, but... But what about the uh, the issue of the seals at all? You know, what's what's the significance of these seals? You know, why is it depicted in this way? What what is the imagery supposed to tell us? Well, if you look, if you go back into the Old Testament for your kind of the background for the book of Revelation um, in the prophet Daniel, I think at the very end of Daniel, God tells him, you know, he gets the this vision of everything that's going to come in so many days. And the vision is concerned with a later time, God tells Daniel or an angel does. And then um, he tells him to seal up the scroll. So the seal is a way in which the content of the scroll can be safeguarded, right? No one's going to tamper with it. If you do tamper with it, you're going to, whoever receives the scroll knows this is uh, a corrupted scroll or something like that. But it also in the book of Daniel, it shows that the things Daniel saw were not for immediate kind of application. 
Now in the book of Revelation, since Christ has come, since Christ has risen, since he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, now it's time to actually break the, the scroll open. And so these things are maybe not completely accomplished, but they've already begun. And so from our vantage point, kind of looking backwards, we can see, hey, these some of these things that have happened in the seals, we can actually see how they've how they've played out in history, yeah. not just in the symbolic apocalyptic genre, but in history. Yeah, and I think that the technology of the scroll is also significant for the Lamb's authority and sovereignty is that he could have received a message in an informal way, orally, or he could have received uh, a fragment of paper or a codex even uh, on which early Christians were often writing down their own holy writings. But he receives the most formal and expensive form of document sealed in the most elaborate possible way. So that gives you a sense of his unique authority to direct history in the way that he will via the un, via the opening up of these true things. Sure, sure. Why are there seven seals? What's the significance of that? Well, the the seal. So we mentioned before the seal is you know whoever puts their their stand. In some ways, it's like a signature. Mm-hmm. Right. But but here there's no mention of like what is depicted on the seal. If you and there's you can you can go to any kind of ancient museum, ancient history museum. The seals were widespread in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you guys might have been there when we went to that. Yeah, we all were together at the um, Oriental the ancient or yeah the yeah. oriental institute mm-hmm. in chicago remember there's like a whole room there that just has all these different seals that different kinds of people used in um, in the ancient world but i think the purpose of the seal is really just to like adam was saying to signify this is this is not just you know a note that you pass to your friend um, during <laughs> right, yeah. during class there is there are some other kind of precedents not biblical ones but for instance, in the Roman law, before you to open a, someone's will or their testament, you had to have six the six witnesses who had all who were all there when whoever made the will or the testament um, they all witnessed it and they put their stamp their seal on the will and so once that person died and the will was going to be opened, you needed to have all six of those people there who could then say, yep, this is my seal, that's my seal, that's my seal, and then you can open it up. So the the Lamb's scroll or God's scroll having seven is perhaps connected to that, although it's, it's hard to see exactly why, but it's just emphasizing this is a scroll that um, no one else can open, only one who has authority, only one who has this official standing, the, the true son of God can open it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I think that numbers do not have a sort of mystical significance on their own in Revelation. That is that Revelation is not similar to the Jewish practice of gematria, where, you know, because numbers themselves have their own magical significance, they can therefore also be manipulated by the person who understands the code, as if in decoding the book, I can then become a, a kind of a, a, a code writer myself. Seven has a significance as reflective of divine completeness in the sense of the sevenfold spirit of God, for instance, earlier in the book. Sure. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Well, and, and with all of this and the seals that we see here, and I think I think there is that connection with the divineness and even the, the witness. I mean, maybe you can make a connection with God bearing witness to what is happening here. You know, like you say, he is the one who is in complete control of the situation. This is his scroll and no one's and no one else's. You know, he is the one who has testified to it. He is the one who has closed it. And now he is the one who has opened it as well. So, yeah, I think all of these things are, are connected. And I think these are, are good things for us to consider. But is there anything else that we want to say kind of introducing this subject before we start delving into the seals themselves? Maybe just by way of kind of uh, setting the stage for for future things, the the seven seals lead to the seven trumpets, 
And those seven trumpets then lead to the seven bowls of wrath. Probably, probably some of our listeners are familiar with this kind of the cyclical nature of the book that as the, the book of Revelation progresses, you kind of get repeat occurrences. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already had a cycle of sevens. We had the seven letters in chapters two and three. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but even within that cycle, I think that there is also a progression, right? It's not a simple circle that John is just continually going around the circle. So it's not, it's not going to be the case that the first seal is equal to the first trumpet, is equal to the first bowl of wrath. There is something about that where these things do repeat, but they repeat with diff- with differences and there is a progression. And I would say within the whole book, if you, if you think of the whole book as the story of the, the heavenly kingdom of the lamb coming down to earth, because that's finally the goal, I think that's a helpful thing to always have in the back of your mind when you're reading the book of Revelation, so that you see, again, something that we said at the very beginning here, what's happening is not absent from the Lamb's power and his, mm-hmm. uh, what we might say, his good and gracious kingdom that's going to come at the end also has to cause um, tribulations on earth. And he has his purposes for those things. And like Adam was saying, they're not. it's not insanity that he's trying to produce. It's you know, this is kind of skipping ahead, but it's repentance and faith that are at the at the heart of these things. Sure. Adam, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, the idea that God has his own book also means that only he can, you know, open and, as it were, interpret means that all things rest in his hands. And I think that that is difficult for people to understand, but it's finally the central message to suffering churches, weak churches at the beginning of the book is that he is in control of all things so that the, the present reality or weightiness, especially of suffering is going to be nothing compared with the weight of glory that is yet to be revealed. And that, that idea is I think one very easily forgotten when suffering and death are weighing down upon you so heavily. I mean, it is under those conditions, you know, in which in the parable of the sower, people readily fall away. So the idea that he has an understanding, which is itself the outworking of history that only he controls and grasps should be immensely comforting because it tells you that finally he is directing all of these things for the good of his body, the church. Yeah, yeah this this always comes out to me in uh, when you read like Matthew 24, right? The Olivet Discourse, mm-hmm. and you hear Jesus just go on and on about, you know, the disciples want to know the signs of the end. And and Jesus gives a lot of a lot of terrible stuff that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And he, but then he says, see, I've told you everything beforehand. And it's easy for us to to miss out on that because we didn't hear it before it happened. We heard right. it, you know, after the fact. Right. right. And uh, but that is the comfort that comes with like none of the stuff that happens. Jesus told us all these things would happen. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not a surprise to him. It's right. a surprise to us. Sure. But the church is comforted. The church is strengthened when it sees, for instance, these four horsemen going about because Jesus told us to expect these things and he promises through it all, right? The one who endures will be saved. So he gives very short sentences of comfort and long descriptions of the tribulation, but that is all you have to read these things all together and not just get lost in the, you know, the crazy signs and skip out on, see, I've told you all before it happened. Yeah. Well, and, and that really is the great comfort. One that I think we sometimes miss is knowing that even if things are terrible, even if things are going, you know, not going the way I expected them to, yet we still have a gracious God who is directing my steps. And so I, even if my life is, is suffering, yet I know that I am looking forward to something greater. So right. yeah, no, great stuff, guys. But we need to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken.
The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back to Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here today with David Appold and Adam Kuntz talking about the book of Revelation. So we left off in the last section, guys, talking about the introduction to the seven seals, uh, Revelation 6 through the beginning of chapter 8. But now let's start digging into the seals themselves and really kind of get a feel for what's going on here. So uh, let's let's start with the first one. David? Yeah, the actually the first four, I think we can do kind of in lump sum. They're they're very okay. similar. As the lamb breaks open each of the first four seals, you get the voice of one of those living creatures who are the closest to the throne speaking, and I think he's speaking to John, come, right? So every time the lamb breaks a seal, the living creature tells John to come, and John sees a horseman riding out into the world. And each of the horsemen have a different colored horse, which we can talk about the colors in a minute, and they have a different object that they carry with them. And then more or less, the living creature will describe something about who that horseman is or what his purpose is in the world. Okay. So what about the first horseman then, the, the white horse with the, the conquering rider? What, what do we know about him? Yeah, the, the very first thing that happens is you've got this powerful white horse that goes out and the description, I think, interprets it for us, right? He receives, the rider receives a crown, so authority to rule and, and to conquer, especially. And you can hear in the repetition of the word, he came out conquering and to conquer. So the very first thing that happens is that there's going to be this powerful ruler, this powerful conqueror, who's going to go through the whole world. Okay. What, is there any connection to, say, the the white rider towards the end of the book of Revelation? Because he's described in similar description, right? I mean, what, what, is, what is the purpose of this sign? You know, what, yeah. what, is, what is happening here? And what is the connection with some of these other images that we see? Yeah, you're, you are right. There is um, actually Jesus comes at the end on a, a white horse. And I think there he's described as the word of God is his title. I, and I think it would be a mistake to say, see, here is Jesus. This is like kind of Jesus <laughs> before the end. I think that there may be some who say that each of these riders is somehow Christ himself. Um, but I think that's, that's, <laughs> that's like, uh, yeah, that's, that's like advanced level Christology is everything. Yeah, so. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> the whole Bible bears witness to Jesus. So everything right, is right. Christological. Right, I think, right. I think it's better. I mean, the one thing that I would say the connection there is you have the same animal, this white horse, the, the, I think the white horse is a sign of, is like a sign of military strength, right? The king who rides out into battle usually rides a, should ride a white horse, a big white horse. And so it's a war horse. It's not the lowly donkey that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And so I, I would say maybe the, the connection is one of power, but the identity of the riders is certainly different. Sure. And the, the conquering that happens here, if you think of the, the context for Revelation, you've got the Roman Empire by and large, has kind of already conquered the world, but these conquerings, the the might of Rome continues on. And I would I would say at least as a sort of first way to understand what's being described here, look at the Roman Empire and how it conquers the various lands that surround it. 
Is this something that we can find uh, like connections to our own time, or do you think it's something that's connected just to that immediate time period? Well, this that gets into the whole question of like the cyclical nature of these mm-hmm. things, right? Do did this just happen once and it's done? Since Willie's not here, we can maybe not do that, but he he might come back <laughs> with with great power yeah. next time yeah. and tell us yeah. no all these things have happened. Um, <laughs> but the I think that it is I think it is fair to say that wherever you see these, it's like Jesus says, right? There will be wars and rumors of war, and there will be uh, various kingdoms that arise and kingdoms that fall, and all of this is part of the. It's under the providence of the Lamb of God on his throne that the different kingdoms and authorities of the world rise and fall. Sure. Adam, do you want to add anything? Yeah, the, the some of the imagery is very strange in Old Testament terms because the the idea of mounted archers is really unusual apart from the, you know, Indo-Aryan or then later on Persian powers. So the idea that he has a bow and is riding a horse rather than a donkey makes him a very unusual figure in terms of Old Testament kingship. And I think the way to begin to think about, okay, well, how does this apply to wars and rumors of war in our time is that he is in some sense foreign both to a Jewish understanding of kingship, but also to a Roman one, because there is no pretense of equality in calling yourself, say, you know, princeps instead of just saying king. But there also he hit the the weaponry that he has indicates that he comes from somewhere else, possibly to destroy. And I think part of the message is that he is someone who, like the assorted Persian empires over time, could in some way overthrow Rome. Hmm. Sure, he's not carrying, uh, you know, he's not carrying the Roman sword. He's not even riding on a chariot. That's a good point to make. He is carrying this bow, which is not... I, you know, I don't know, I don't know my Roman military, you know, rankings as well there, but it's not what you think of when you think of the Roman centurions or the Roman, no, no, um, no. you know, the Roman guard. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a military technology. It's not like the Romans don't have this, but they'll usually outsource archery to specific ethnicities within the empire. It's not standard weaponry for them and certainly therefore not for their commanders. Sure. Well, and then I suppose you could make connections just historically, say like the the fear that came before the Mongol hordes, for example. Yeah, right. You know, this idea of a foreign enemy, one that we did not see, you know, come from we didn't we didn't see it coming, and all of a sudden it's breaking out upon us. So yeah, that would certainly be a an example of a time of great you know tribulation, a time of great terror, and we would wonder, you know, why are these things happening? Right. Okay. Do we want to add anything else about the first one? We got to get through all of them. So, <laughs> no, the, no, uh, no, sir. Yeah, I, let's go on to the next one. So, next, all right, yeah, the next as the next seal is broken open, and maybe just one thing to point out here: the the breaking open of the seals is all kind of preliminary, right? It's it's leading into you want to read what's actually on the scroll. Right. So all of this is leading up to the scroll. It's not the actual content of the scroll itself yet. This is all preparatory for the scroll. But that being said, the next one is this is we had a white horse. Now you get this bright red horse and the bright red horse has on his back the rider who isn't carrying anything. But the rider is, uh, it says, permitted to take peace from the earth. So first the conqueror comes and he conquers. And then you have the bright red horse. The only other bright red figure in Revelation is the bright red dragon. Or is it the bright red beast um, who comes up later? No, it's the dragon. The dragon is bright red. So there's some sort of, you know, this violent, this is a violent figure. Mm -hmm. And you can see that then in what follows after him, people slay one another and I, I take it back, he does carry a great sword with him. Well, would this be, if if the first one is like a foreign enemy coming in and kind of overrunning, would this be more emblematic, say, of like civil war, like internal strife? 
Yeah, I think that's I, I and I think that's contained in the in the image because in Greek he's literally just a burning or a fiery horse. So the the color interpretation is what do you think of when you think of fire? And the way that fire consumes is not is is going to be in this totally internally destructive way rather than coming from afar with foreign technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the the taking peace then would be taking that kind of domestic peace that, you know, this time of civil strife, this time of civil war, you know, times when, I mean, good gracious, I mean, the Romans had all kinds of periods like this and the Byzantines, especially, you know, that they, they were always seemingly at some kind of civil war and it would be a time of great distress, a time where they would be wondering, you know, what is happening to us? You know, will we find peace again? Yeah. Right, and you and you can see this uh, again. the The value of hearing it beforehand compared to hearing it afterwards. You can we can look back and say, actually, yeah, this stuff um, did frequently happen, where you would have, you know, the barbarians pressing into the Roman Empire, and in their wake, once the Roman kind of systems fall apart, well, then there's a lot of internal fighting for who's who's going to be in charge now. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe connecting it with Jesus's own predictions about brother against brother and uh, father against son, some of that same kind of internal fighting goes on here. Sure. Okay. What about the next one then? The third seal. Yeah. So now we've got we had the white horse, the red horse, and now you get a black horse. And uh, the black horse comes. The man who's riding it has. A sca- he has scales for weighing things out in his hand. And uh, John hears him speaking and he hears, this is what, I'll just read what he says and then we can talk about what it means. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. So after the conqueror and after the internal, you know, what we were calling here civil war, you have the guy who comes with the message of, a message about scarcity, right? So that that's what he means when he says that um, the denarius is a day's wage. So you're going to ha- get a quart of wheat, which is not that much. It's going to cost you a whole day's wage. And you're going to get three quarts of barley, which is cheaper, but still you're not able to get much for your money. Well, and, and maybe to clarify here too, the denarius being the entire day's wage and what is translated here as a quart or a coinex in Greek uh, was the equivalent of basically what you needed for the day. So if you had a, a, a coinex or a quart of wheat, that would be sufficient for that day's food, whereas th- uh, barley was considered an inferior grain and so you needed more of it to get the same amount, uh, to get the same health benefits, if you yeah. will. And so three, three of them would be kind of the, the daily equivalent. But the, the point being here that you would have to work all day to get paid just so that you would be able to buy enough to eat for that day. Right. So it's this incredible economic hardship that, uh, that you know, these people are basically just eating, you know, hand to foot, you know, I <laughs> paid a check to paycheck yeah. kind of a thing. And what are we, what are you supposed to do in that? Yeah, right. I mean, there's there's something here. The uh, like the keto diet is apparently unknown, right? Well, because... this, this is the Middle East, you know, <laughs> source source of all cultivated grasses and all five five yeah. people. So yeah, yeah. I mean, but they're they are they are caught up in their breads, right? They need their wheats <laughs> to survive. They right. they just need to hear the gospel of the keto. Go into ketosis, guys. It'll right. be all right. Yeah. But the, the significance here of this, uh, you know, of this horseman is after the conquering, after the, the taking away of peace, what comes is this time of great scarcity. And uh, you can think of some of the Old Testament uh, precedents for this. When the Babylonians surround Jerusalem, um, you get Ezekiel talking about how, you know, you're, you're going to eat this Ezekiel bread, which you can buy in the store now, uh, but nobody wanted to eat that stuff in Jerusalem. That was, that was the sign of judgment on you, that you were eating that bread. Right. Well, and then I think that it's also significant here, and maybe you guys can push back on it, but I, when it says in the first part of verse 6 that I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, the only one who's in the midst of the four living creatures is the Lord himself. So is it, hmm. 
is it God who is saying these things? It is, is it God who is declaring this or is it someone else? I hadn't thought of that, to be honest, Selwyn, but I just took it to be the, the rider on the horse. But you may be right that it is well, I mean, the lamb himself. I mean, because it says in the midst of the four living creatures, I mean, it, it's making a distinction between what is happening with the rider and wherever this voice is coming yeah. from. Yeah, you're, Those, you, yeah, you're right. Go ahead, David. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say the letters aren't read in my Bible, so I have a hard time knowing if it's <laughs> the words of Jesus or not. <laughs> Um, I think that that it, it, this goes along with the discussion of the Lamb's sovereignty that we had earlier, because it is it is precisely the one who is speaking, who controls the flow of events. The writers themselves are mute. And I think that that is significant because it is the speech of God that controls what happens, not that these are, as it were, autonomous historical forces as they themselves, like say Cyrus and Isaiah, may have imagined, right? But it's instead God's decision and God's speech that yeah. controls what occurs. Yeah, which is why it's then significant that he says, do not harm the oil and do not harm the wine, right? So there is there is something preserved in the midst of this scarcity. It's not total famine. It's not complete and utter you know, hand-to-mouth kind of existence. There is something preserved. Well, and this is, of course, this is me, Amos, posting again, surprise, surprise. But, you know, when when God says, you know, I sent rain on one city and not another, you know, yeah. I sent you famine, and yet you did not return to me. I mean, all of these things are under the control of God, including the things where we would consider them to be times of great hardship, times of great suffering. Yet this is the decree of God for his own purposes, Right. Yeah. I, and, and I think that um, when you think about like the, the famine in Judea, uh, you know, for which the collection is taken up at least once inside the history that we do get explicitly in the New Testament, when you're talking about, OK, you're going to have to pay coinage for grain, you're not dealing with a specifically agricultural society. You're dealing with economic realities, which are very much subject to political and mercantile decision making. And what's, I mean, I think what's interesting here as an insight on economics is that even things that appear to be the machinations of, you know, merchants or yeah. also, you know, just agricultural events in the bread baskets of the empire over which you have no control, even those things are actually under divine control. <laughs> yeah, this this is not saying that it's the invisible hand that controls right. all things. There is no invisible hand, right? Yeah. Right. It's the right. lamb in the midst. The the we haven't said it yet, but there is the there is a precedent for the horsemen on these different colored horses in apocalyptic canonical books. In the book of Zechariah, there are these horsemen who go out, but they don't do anything in the book of Zechariah. They mm -hmm. are just gods um, they're kind of like the eyes of the spirit searching through the whole world and they bring back a report. But here in Revelation, they are actually agents, right? They have agency that they don't necessarily have in Zechariah. Um, and again, that the, the point of bringing that up is not just to say, well, look, there's a, a parallel, um, right? We're not interested in just parallelomania, but it is a, it is a sign that these things happen under the guidance of the Lamb. Okay, well, let's let's finish out this section then with the, the last of the horsemen, just so we can get all of them. What about the fourth horseman? Yeah, the ho fourth horseman actually has a name, and uh, he rides a pale horse. The rider's name was Death, and Hades follows after him. And they are given, Death and Hades will come back later in the book of Revelation, but they are given here authority. And who is it that authorizes them? It must be the Lamb must be God, uh, who is giving them authority over, uh, here it says, a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts on the earth. So is this, is this just an image of, say, a little bit more widespread devastation? Because, I mean, we, we see here, you know, sword and famine and pestilence, you know, all these things are kind of happened already. But maybe the significance here is the, the degree to which this is happening. What do you think? It's the first time where you have a number 
mentioned, right? So um, there is a fourth of the earth before you just had the, the guy comes conquering. You don't know how much of the land he conquers. You don't know how widespread the pest, the famine or the scarcity is. Uh, but now you have it over a fourth of the earth. And later, I think it's in the trumpets, the plagues that come with the trumpets or maybe the bowls of wrath affect a third of the earth. So this is what I meant there. It's not just a repeat cycle. When we say that the book of Revelation is cyclical, there is progress within these cycles. Yeah. And the, the different manner, the different uh, manners in which people can die are supposed to capture something really geographically holistic. So it's easy to imagine that in a city I could die of starvation or that in a time of civil strife, I could die at the hand of my fellow citizen. But the idea also of being killed by wild beasts means that the place that people go when they have nowhere else to go, the wilderness, right, of specifically Judah, for instance, throughout history, Old Testament, New Testament, and afterward, is also not a refuge. That, 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 that from the destruction wrought by this divine wrath, there is no earthly refuge to which you could flee and escape. An excellent point. Okay, well, let's take a break there. We'll come back after the break with the next seal. So we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here with David Appold. Unfortunately, Adam has been raptured and is not able to finish out this segment with us today, but we thank him for his insights today and look forward to having him onto the show again. So <laughs> he'll be back someday. He'll be back. Yeah. He'll be back. It's it's not a it's not a complete rapture. It's just just a partial one. Right. So he's gone into secret. <laughs> But let's let's continue on our discussion, David, then, and talk about the next seal, the fifth seal, the first one that you would say is a little bit different from the other ones, right? Right. So no more, there's no more horsemen. And so now, and I mean, you know, there were four living creatures, there were four horsemen that, that went through a quarter of the earth. And now with the fifth seal, you do get a, a, a not only a different type of um, description, but also a diff- you're, we're no longer looking on earth. So when the fifth seal is opened, John sees under the altar the souls of, the, of those, it describes them this way, who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Okay, mm-hmm. And then John overhears them and he hears them essentially praying to God um, that he would avenge them on earth. So he's hearing something going on in heaven, and the final kind of outcome of this is that the Lord responds to them and says, they're given a white robe, they're told to rest for a little longer, and then it says there's going to be more martyrs. So I think kind of big picture here, what happens in the fifth seal after all this destruction that's come with the four horsemen, there's going to be increased numbers of martyrs. We're gonna have we're gonna have greater martyrdom, and so maybe here for a little bit, Zelwyn, we could just kind of talk about what martyrdom is, and you know why why is that? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Those kinds of those kinds of questions. Sure. Well, I mean, martyrdom, of course, in the most basic sense, would be those who have died for their for their testimony, right? Those who have been killed for the sake of God. 
uh, whether because they, you know, the the pagans or, or you know the unbelievers around them, you know, were stirred up against them and put them to death because of their preaching, or whether you know, there's there's all kinds of martyr stories, right? And I don't think we have all, you know, we don't have the time to go through all of them by or even right. a, more than maybe like one or two of them, but. But the point being is that these are people who have suffered for the sake of God. Yeah, and that's the the progression from the first four play or not plagues. The first four seals are just it's just widespread, right? Everything that's described in the first four seals affects affects you whether, you know, Jew or Gentile, Christian, non-Christian, whoever. Everyone's touched by those first four horsemen. But here you have kind of a, a closer focus on the church within all of that stuff happening. What's going on in the church? Well, there's going to be ramped up persecution, right? Because you, you don't have martyrdom where there is no persecution, right? You only have martyrdom where people are being told there's going to be consequences if you keep talking about Jesus and they're going to be, we're going to kill you, right? I mean, that's right. really the definition of a martyr. Uh, sometimes right. it's it's like the old, you know, if everybody's special, then nobody's special. If everybody is a martyr, if martyrs are just those who who bear witness, then you lose that specific fact that that a true martyr is someone who bears a specific kind of witness, which is a witness of take my life, but I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus or I'm not going to renounce you know, I'm not going to renounce the Lord Jesus and you can kill me if you want to, but he'll raise me up. Well, I think it's important here too, that it says that, you know, they're crying out and asking how long before you will judge and avenge our blood. So they, they recognize that, you know, martyrdom involves a certain injustice, a certain crime, a certain, you know, that this is that they have suffered unjustly for what they have done and, you know, and have given their lives as a result of it. And I I think that's important because then when they're crying out for vengeance, they're recognizing that God can do something about it. You know, that there is an, there is this kind of sin that needs to be addressed, this, this sin that, you know, their unjust death that needs to be avenged, but they look towards the Lord as the one who is able to do that. Right. Yeah. The, maybe, a. An Old Testament example is helpful here, the the three men in the fiery furnace. Remember mm-hmm. when Nebuchadnezzar is telling them that, you know, you've got to bow down and they, they have this great witness, this great martyrdom account, really, but they are uh, vindicated right away because the son of God, you know, comes, the angel of the Lord comes in the, fu- in the fiery furnace and saves them. So they don't actually die. Right. Martyrs, on the other hand, there is this open question for them. Well, we gave, we bore witness to the Lord and we were killed for it and he hasn't raised us yet. So, you know, when will the Lord bring, when will he vindicate us? When will he um, justify us before the whole world? And that's their hope. And it's a good hope. Maybe we should make sure that we, that we say that that's, it's not a bad request that they're making. The Lord says, it's going to happen. Just wait a little longer. And in the meantime, there's going to be more martyrs who come. There is, there is a purpose to martyrdom. It's not just a mistake. It's not just God's negligence that, oops, I forgot to save, you know, Isaiah. I forgot to save Jeremiah. You know, I, I was a little busy. He has a purpose in allowing even the death of his, uh, you know, great witnesses. Well, and, and especially the language to, until the number of their fellow servants you know, it should be complete, basically saying that God knows the number of those who will be, who will be martyred. God knows and God in, has ordained it, that this is what, you know, by his choice, that these people should suffer and die f- for his behalf and yet to be vindicated in the sight of all. So, I mean, again, the, the, the main emphasis here that's going on again and again and again is that it is the Lord who is the one who is con- calling the shots. The Lord is the one who is in control of this situation. Mm-hmm. And even the, the death of his saints is something that he chooses, but it, he chooses it both for their good and for his glory. Yeah, and you think about the, like, what is the value? Kind, like, there, what is the immediate value of martyrdom? Why, why is martyrdom so powerful? You know, because that I think there is 
throughout the book of Revelation, there is, there's, there's going to be frequent references to martyrdom and martyrs. And somehow the martyrs figure into God's plans and purposes, the kingdom of, of God coming on earth in a, in a significant way, in a special way. What, like, how would you answer that, Zoe? And what is the value immediately of martyrdom? Uh, the, the great value of martyrdom, I mean, besides the, the glory of the martyrs themselves, is that they, uh, the, the great witness that they bear to the church, right? That they, through their death, is, you know, whatever it may be, and their steadfastness in the face of yeah. suffering, their steadfastness in the face of death, we can look to that and say, you know, we can be strengthened in our own faith. That we know that, you know, as these, as these martyrs have been faithful unto death, that we are encouraged, that we are strengthened, that we are built up so that we can imitate them in some sense, even if we ourselves are never martyred, you know, because we might think it's difficult to face the pressures of the world, but then we can look to these martyrs whom God has given and say, well, you know, to, to find encouragement, to find an example that we may be able to imitate. Yeah. I think the other, the other, the only thing maybe I would add to that, there is also value, um, the witness that's given to those outside of the church. So think of, think of the, you know, if you're a Roman emperor and you suppose that you have all power and all control and that all you have to do is torture people long enough or threaten them severely enough and you can get them to bend to your will when you come up against these people who these christians who you know are saying things like you know we we believe in jesus we believe that jesus is lord and god not Sir, not caesar <laughs> right. and you come to them and you say well okay you can say that but now i'm going to start putting the pressure on and there is a a witness that's given to them outside the church to those who are persecuting and killing the christians that we do not fear what you fear. We do not hold as the most terrible punishment losing our earthly life. Um, you know, take take my soul, take my my earthly life, but my soul is preserved by the Lord Jesus. And that is that was a powerful witness to the Roman, j- just to Caesar and to the Romans as they looked at the early Christians and said, "Who are these people who are willing to give up their life?" and who we can't scare into submission. Right. Well, even even in a positive sense, too, because how often do you read the accounts of the martyrs and you'll hear that so-and-so who had been persecuting them or so-and-so who had been guarding them uh, suddenly you know, throws down their weapons or whatever and becomes a Christian themselves, only to become a martyr right. themselves. You know, that, that, that great witness which is born even in their death, even in their steadfastness, so that there are many accounts of people who come to faith as a result of, of the martyrs, you know, and seeing these things happen. So, yeah, I, I absolutely. It's, it's also a great witness, not only to, you know, the, the truth of what God has to say, but also so that many so that others may come to faith. Now, the, the, the only other thing I would add in here, Zelwyn, before we go on to the next seal, is that, you know, this question, we've, we've kind of touched on this in the other four seals up to this point. They're told, wait a little until the number of martyrs is fulfilled, is filled up. And so, you know, you can project that, you know, when will God vindicate the martyrs? Well, certainly on the last day, right? When they rise in glory, and those who who murdered them rise to corruption. Of course, that's going to be the ultimate vindication. But I think even before that final vindication, there is a vindication of the martyrs. There is a vindication of the great saints who have gone before us, even just in the way that, say, the Roman Empire has fallen and the Holy Christian Church continues. Is, is that too much of a stretch to say that there is in time also a vindication of the martyrs. No, I, I think you could say that, and especially I would I would I would qualify that and say that the with the Romans specifically that Rome itself became Christian was I right. think a, a great vindication of the martyrs because pagan Rome has long since fallen. It's been yeah. you know long gone, but that the, the that the emperors would become Christian that 
you know, that the, the, the Romans would become Christians. You know, this is a vindication of Christ over the nations as well. And I just, yeah, I just wanted to get in there the, uh, that Constantine, when Constantine is converted <laughs> to being a Christian, that's a big deal. And that's not, that's not just a, it's not something that we look at and say, oh, well, he's just using the faith. I mean, maybe he did, but I don't, I don't have that negative view of Constantine that he, you know, he just used the faith to, uh, as the opiate of the masses or something like that, right? No, these things, this is how God works in history. And he vindicates his martyrs even before the end, right? Even before the end. Sure. Well, you realize, David, that Constantine is basically the reason why everything has gone wrong. So, <laughs> well, I have heard that a time or two, and uh, I just don't believe it. I I can't buy it either. So, all right. Well, we're gonna finish up with our sixth seal then, and that's probably gonna be the last one we get to today. But what when we open up the sixth seal? Seal. What is it that's happening? Uh, lots of bad things happen <laughs> with the sixth seal. Everything kind of falls apart in the sixth seal. Right. Um, so I'll read it here. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then, and here's where you get the reaction now to all these, you know, what we would say are terrifying things. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it is a a very powerful image. There's a lot of things going on here, but if you had to to kind of start explaining it here, what would you say is the the basic image at work? Well, I would say you have all of creation, all these different parts of creation that seem so sturdy and so stable are melting away, right? It's almost like Psalm 46, you know, the, the seas roar and the mountains shake. But, and the point of that is, everything is in tumult, everything is in uproar. And I think that's, again, the comparison with the plagues is helpful here. Creation is not a free agent that just things happen kind of outside of God's control. Every All the things that happen, what we would call natural disasters, in some way come under his providence, under God's providence. And so the conclusion that the people of the earth draw I think is a fair conclusion. They say, who can save us, right? That they, they connect these things to God and to the lamb. When calamities happen, it's not, you know, it's not the devil's fault. The devil may be instrumental in these things, but they, they have to pass through the lamb and God's hands first before the devil is allowed to do anything. Sure. Although, when they are calling out to the mountains and to the rocks, you know, fall on us and hide us, this is not the, the cry of, of faith. This is not the cry of, you know, deliver us. This is a cry of, you know, we, we are not sorry for the things that we have done. We, we just want to hide from God. You know? Yeah, it's, this is Pharaoh at the end. You know, this is like Pharaoh after several of the plagues, he, he relents, right? But he's mm-hmm. not... And he even asks Moses, you know, it almost sounds like Pharaoh is converted in places of Exodus. Mm-hmm. But even once he relents, it's not because he fears the Lord. He might be terrified of the power that the Lord has, but he is still stubborn against the Lord. He is still arrogant over against him and refuses to submit to him. So I think, again, the parallel with the plagues is helpful to understand what's happening here the kings, the great ones, the rich, the powerful, everyone, they're not brought to repentance, even if they're brought to terror, right? Even if they're brought to a place where they say, because of all this stuff that's happening, this is beyond our control. We recognize that, you know, our wisdom and our power has fallen short. Who can save us is a, is a call of despair, not one of faith. Right, exactly. 
Oh, and I would, I mean, I think there is a connection here between, as you termed it, you know, kind of natural disasters. And that's certainly something that we do need to emphasize is that, you know, God is the one who sends the, the hurricane. God is the one who sends the tornado. God is the one who sends the earthquake. You know, he is the one who is the master of history. He is the one who is the master of all things. But I do think that there is something more than just, say, your average natural disaster at work here. You know, because they yeah. are described as a great earthquake. It is described as the sun, you know, basically burning out, you know, the moon becoming like blood, the, the stars falling. You know, this is this is imagery of something above and beyond just your ordinary tornado. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. And I, you know, is this describing like, you know, are we to read this literally here? You know, this is always one of the things that comes up in the book of Revelation. You know, are are we to expect a beastly figure that, you know, like is is Godzilla going to rise up out of the out of the sea? And is King is he going to create King Kong on Earth who's going to walk around or are those describing, you know, forces are those are those apocalyptic images that describe forces that we would say you know, don't look like a beast, but function like a beast. And I think that there's a, a similar question here. Was there a, you know, what people would say is a literal earthquake? Did this, is the sun really becoming black and burning out? Are we talking about the end of history, the last day? Or is this a apocalyptic image of everything that we know falling to pieces? say when the Roman empire falls or say when, you know, more, it doesn't have to be that big, but when smaller things fall apart, when the forces that kind of keep everything stable come unglued, is that what revelation is describing? And I, I think that, that you could, I think that it's a faithful way to read it there is to say, this is not the last day, but it happens there are going to be these instances within time of everything falling apart. Well, and I, I think that's fair to see this as kind of a symbolic image of what do you want to call it? Like end of the world kind of events. And what I, and what I mean is, is those, those big events in history, the kind of epic making like world changing events, like the fall of a nation, for example, or, you know, the, like or like even like you say the the fall of Rome for that matter you know these these kinds of events that happen where everything that we assume is so natural and so stable is no longer there and yeah. therefore you know we 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 recognize in that moment a particularly concentrated form of the of God's wrath upon yes. upon the world i i do think that that is i think that's one way to certainly to look at it I think you could also see it as just the looking towards the the great end, right? You know, when all things will come undone, you know, when when all nations will fall, when all will hide from the lamb. So I, I think it's kind of a, a both and, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and maybe similar to, we've mentioned this um, parallel a few times, Matthew 24 shifts, you know, Jesus, I, th I think I've heard it described this way, kind of slips the gears between talking about the temple and Jerusalem and the end of the world. And he, he doesn't say, now, guys, I'm talking about just the temple now, or now I'm just talking about, you know, the Romans surrounding Jerusalem. And now I'm talking about the final end, the capital E end. But all these things, the, you know, the little ends that happen prefigure the final end that happens. And so the we're not trying to have it you know, have our cake and eat it too. I think that there is this consistent pattern in the way in apocalyptic literature that the the little ends that come before the big end also look a lot like the final ending. And if you were alive in those times, if you lived through those things, you wouldn't know, are we at the end or is this just, you know, is this just the end of Rome or is it the end of the world? Yeah. I mean, you can imagine the terror of the Babylonians when Babylon fell. You can imagine the terror that, you know, crossed over Europe when the Western Roman Empire fell. You know, you can imagine the terror that comes when, say, any of the, the great kingdoms fall. 
you know, and it, it really does seem like the end of all things. I mean, when this nation finally falls and we I mean, you have to say that it will at one point or another because there is no there are no exceptions. You know, that will be a time of great terror. But what we recognize is that even in those moments of the world is falling apart, the world is ending, you know, the sky is falling, as it were, we recognize that it is God who is still in control of the situation. Yeah. No, it's it's too bad that we can't go. But, you know, in some ways, it's good to stop right here at the at the sixth seal, because that final question should kind of ring out who who can stand before the wrath of of God and of the Lamb? Like that question should stand out and, you know, maybe there should be a pause. And it's good that we're coming up on the end of our episode here because the what comes next is going to be the vision of those who are being saved from the tribulation, right? These are those who are coming out of the great tribulation, who've washed their robes and made them white. That vision comes right at the end of, you know, this sixth seal. Yes. And then I think, yeah, we'll we'll dig into that next time and really start uh, start digging into you know Revelation seven and forward. So we'll finish up the seals with the next episode and see kind of where we're going to go from there. But uh, David, th- glad to have you on. And of yeah, course, absolutely, we want to say thank you again to Adam, even though he was with us for only part of the episode. Anything you want to say in closing before we before we close? No, just uh, you know, I hope Willie stays safe out there. It's adventure on the high seas is uh, certainly inspiring and i wish him all the best on his voyages i hope he finds the lost city and uh, and can bring back many treasures he's he's always so generous when he returns so looking forward to his 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 return well i'm i i from what i understand he's probably also looking for the big fella so yeah this has this has been a word fitly spoken if you like what you heard check us out on wordfitlyspoken.org facebook.com slash wordfitly or twitter at wordfitly I'm Zellin Heidi here with David Apple God love you and God bless I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Revelation 5. Two through four.